Welcome to Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean text and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 170 of Lucretius Today. We are continuing in chapter 10 of Norman DeWitt's Epicurus and His Philosophy. The topic of the chapter is the new freedom And we are in the subsections that are talking about other aspects of necessity and freedom. We're going to start today with necessity of death. The other topics include freedom, government, and law, freedom in public careers, control of environment, freedom in the simple life, and control of desires. The first one is one of those issues that is not something we have freedom about. We have no ability to escape death no matter how long we live. And DeWitt starts with Vatican saying 31, against all other hazards, it's possible for us to gain security for ourselves. But so far as death is concerned, all of us human beings inhabit a city without walls. And DeWitt's interpretation of that is that the immediate effect of this is to invest the present with a pressing urgency and to demand the control of experience with respect to the past, the present and the future. I think the ultimate point is that since we cannot ultimately defeat death and since we have taken the position that there is no life after death, there is a sense of maybe urgency is not exactly the right word, but importance and significance to the time that we have. Urgency might imply that we're going to be anxious about things. And while some things we may end up being anxious about, I think DeWitt's ultimate point is that you plan to use the time that you have as best you can, as wisely as you can. You know that you're not going to have an unlimited amount of time, and you simply got to efficiently choose to spend your time in a way that acknowledges that your time is going to be limited in the end. As he often does, DeWitt goes back and forth with the Bible. He quotes Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. And I think DeWitt's correct that there's strong similarity between that sentiment and Epicurean viewpoints. Yeah, Ecclesiastes is an interesting case because I think it's the last book of the Old Testament and is considered to have a high degree of Hellenistic and particularly Epicurean influence. In Vatican saying 14, Epicurus says, or I guess whoever wrote Vatican saying 14 says, We have been born once and cannot be born a second time. For all eternity we shall no longer exist. But you, although you are not in control of tomorrow, are postponing your happiness. Life is wasted by delaying, and each one of us dies without enjoying leisure. And there's a number of them that are like that. Vatican saying 10 says, remember that you are mortal and have a limited time to live and have devoted yourself to discussions on nature for all time and eternity and have seen things that are now and are to become and have been. That one's a little strangely worded, but it's a consistent theme throughout the Vatican sayings. Then he quotes 
also a handful of principal doctrines within the Vatican sayings as well. Joshua, the one you mentioned about dying without enjoying leisure, I think that's Vatican saying 14. And I think you read a version different than the one that DeWitt translates it himself. I see that he's got an interesting variation on that last phrase, which has always been a little bit troublesome to me in terms of without enjoying leisure sounds a little bit flippant to me. DeWitt translates that as, thou fool, though not master of tomorrow, postpone the hour and each and every one of us goes to death with excuses on his lips. Now, that may be more of a paraphrase than a literal translation. But as you say, this is a continuing theme that we cannot ultimately defeat death and we don't need to be procrastinating any more than we absolutely have to. The scorn of procrastination, as DeWitt says, is a continuing theme, which makes sense. You're alive only for a brief period of time, for an eternity, you're not alive. And so all the different cliches about making hay while the sun shines are absolutely applicable to that point of view. I think he quotes the Hippocratic doctrine of life is short, art is long, and the occasion urgent. The point in all of this is that you are going to die. That's as certain as anything in life, is that you are going to die. And the question that that should bring up in your mind is, how are you going to live your life, knowing that that's true? Are you going to spend your life banking on the idea, which some people will try and promise to you, that there's something beyond the grave? And for Epicurus, the answer is no. He's not going to rely on that. And everything that is ever going to happen to you is going to happen to you in this brief span of years that has been given to you in this world and not in the next. Right. And DeWitt has inserted that here in the context of freedom and determinism, certainly as an issue of necessity, because as people say, death and taxes perhaps are the only things that are absolutely certain in life. But it provides a good reminder here in this context that freedom is something to be used with, again, a sense of importance and significance and to some extent urgency because you know that it's your time is limited. And so what then DeWitt does with the rest of the chapter is he's going to go back into how do you use the time that you do have available to you? because you do have some degree of agency to influence the things that are going to happen to you. And so DeWitt covers a number of areas of life in the rest of the chapter here where you can have some degree of influence. And DeWitt discusses the attitude that you should take towards those areas. He sees Epicurus suggesting that there is a dual level of decision-making. You have to set your general attitude towards things. Diathesis, I think, is the word. But also, even though you have a particular attitude about what you'd like to do, you're going to run into particular problems where you sometimes have to make choices that seem to swerve around the direct course to what you like. In other words, your attitude is that the goal of life is to live pleasurably, but there are certainly individual circumstances where you're going to have to choose pain in the short term in order to avoid greater pain or obtain greater pleasure in the future. And so the first of the topics is freedom, government, and law. Now, there's a new book out that one of our four members, Oninsky, has brought to our attention. It's entitled Theory and Practice in Epicurean Political Philosophy. And I can't pronounce the name. So, Joshua, what are the names of the authors? Well, I can't pronounce them very well either, but I think it's Javier Auis and Marcelo D. Boyeri. They've just released their book within the last month or two here in 2023. They've written a series of articles about these topics. But this is an area that's of continuing interest. To what extent do you get involved in the world around you? And I've only been able to read the introduction so far of that book, but it looks like it's going to have a lot of really good material 
Because it seems like in many quarters, there's a what I would call superficial view that Epicurus says absolutely no involvement in politics. And people think that that's the extent of his interest and we just move on past that. But that does not appear to be, when you dive into the details, what Epicurus really had to say. Like everything else, he's going to be making his decisions based on the context of the situation, your individual circumstances. And as this theory and practice in Epicurean political philosophy book illustrates, there were many Epicureans in the past who were involved in government and law And there's a lot of subtlety there in terms of what's appropriate and what's not, that you should not just consider there to be a blanket condemnation. Now, what DeWitt goes into first here is he's contrasting Epicurus's views with those of Plato, how Plato had, especially in his Republic, for example, recommended a highly regimented state. And DeWitt translates that into a maximum of government and a minimum of liberty, which probably is accurate. but From a more philosophical point of view, perhaps, we have the general understanding from the Republic that Plato was considering certain types of people to be golden and other types of people to be associated with other types of metal. And he was suggesting that the best society was going to be strictly regimented into divisions of authority and divisions of function that he thought were the logical implementation of the best philosophy which is a road that Epicurus did not go down at all. Yeah, and actually I might need Martin to help me out with this because Karl Popper wrote a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies in which he takes Plato's ideas in the Republic and sort of traces them throughout history and finds all of the ways in which they have informed some really terrible (laughs) political theories, particularly in the 20th century. Martin, I think you're familiar with that and, and you say that Karl Popper may not have understood Plato as well as he presents in his book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, specifically, this book was written by Karl Popper as his contribution to the war effort against Nazi Germany. So he, he showed with his book that starting with Plato, then going over Hegel and then Marx, that these three thinkers basically prepared the ground for the Nazis. So however well or not well he may have understood Plato, it's clear in Plato's Republic that he does have or does uh, suggest, as DeWitt says here, a more regimented society. I was reading a book, and I've referenced this several times, called The Rise and Fall of Alexandria by Justin Pollard and Howard Reed. And they described the founding of the city of Alexandria from the from the time it was first laid out under Alexander the Great's eyes from the time that they hired the city planner to actually plan the city. And the job of the city planner was not just to lay out roads and buildings and the harbor and and all that. His job was to consider what the ideal state should look like, what percentage of the population should be merchants, what percentage should be artisans and soldiers and Uh, rulers and all of that. So this idea of political theory um, becomes really important in ancient Greece. And there's a lot of people thinking about it and people have all different kinds of ideas. What makes Epicureanism interesting is that there are several instances in history, particularly as I can think of in the Renaissance, in which political thinkers will look to Epicurus to explain societies that they see as being more open than the societies that they themselves live in. And quite recently, I mentioned Thomas More in his book, Utopia, which was founded on the travelogue of Amerigo Vespucci, who said that the Native Americans that he happened to come across 
lived like Epicureans. They didn't have governments or an established church or any of that. They, they just lived in nature. And it's probably an oversimplification, but it's it's what he came across. And, and some of these Europeans seem to find the idea refreshing. Another example would be Papaggio Bracciolini, who in 1417 discovered one of the last surviving manuscripts of Lucretius in the monastery of Fulda in Germany. In that same time, he went to this town called Baden, which is famous for its uh, baths. And the story he tells about the baths is that the standards of, I guess, sexual morality are, have become so lax that you know men and, and women are bathing naked and there's only a screen to separate them, that the women are in the bath and the men are throwing coins down into their loose bathing gowns and, and stuff like that. And he's writing to his friend Niccolo Niccoli back in Italy. And he says much the same thing that uh, Amerigo Vespucci says. He says, I'm describing this to you so that you will understand what a great Epicurean center of life this is because of issues relating to political liberty. And that seems to me the theme of DeWitt's whole section here on freedom, government and law. He says he is no anarchist. He knows that a certain degree of legal control over society is a necessity. But at the same time, he insists that the maximum of liberty implies a minimum government. The question, Cassius and others, is where in, in Epicurus's surviving writings does he come across these ideas? That's the, that's the difficult thing to answer. It's a conjecture of David. It's, it's written in none of the excellent texts. And I think David overinterprets this here. I think Epicurus just stated it as factually. So wherever humans are organized, there is a state with something. So he didn't, he never wrote that this is something like it must be or uh, how it shouldn't be. Eh? Because I, I never saw anywhere that Epicurus really makes a clear statement on what politics we prefer in particular, except of course that we, we want freedom for, to pursue our pleasure. Eh? And so I, I think the, the bit there overstates what we can find in Epigrus. But another thing now to support what Joshua said about Popper, so here quoting from uh, Popper, Popper states here that the equalitarian mo movement, as Plato knew it, represented all he hated, and that his own theory in the Republic and in all, uh, in all later works was largely a reply to the powerful challenge of the new equalitarianism and humanitarianism. And later on, he, he clearly says that Plato's ideal state was a totalitarian state. Yeah, Martin, I agree with what you've just said. I think that DeWitt is, is inferring an awful lot here. Now, in fairness to DeWitt, it seems like what he infers is what most people infer when they read Epicurean philosophy. And for example, the opposite is what they infer from Plato. We do our best to avoid current political discussions because our focus is on understanding Epicurean philosophy without getting sidetracked into contemporary debates that would just distract us from understanding the philosophy in the first place. But obviously, as Joshua has been talking about, as Martin just mentioned with Karl Popper, everybody who looks at the ancient Greeks comes away with an application of what the fundamentals that they're talking about would lead you to conclude. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody suggest that Plato leads you to conclude that a libertarian government is the best way to go to let everybody do what they want to do. And on the other hand, most people who read Epicurus do end up with this conclusion that if you're valuing freedom and the pursuit of individual pleasure and happiness, 
then there's an implication at least that the government is going to at least not stand in the way of that, if not actually assist it. So the general implications of these positions seem to be pretty consistent to me, at least when I see commentators go into this kind of a discussion that DeWitt is going to here. In fact, I was looking at this as we started today. We're on chapter 10 of 15 chapters. And when we get to chapter 14 under the new virtues, there is a section on justice where we'll come back to the doctrines from 30 to 40 that do talk about all these issues. But we're not ever going to get into a really strong focus on justice until that point. But he does talk about, for example, authorized doctrine 31, the justice of nature is a covenant of advantage not to injure one another or be injured. And I would say it's probably fair of DeWitt to derive from that, that he says the very word covenant implies a democratic process and the free choice of the individual, as opposed to the imposition of enactments by the lawgiver or the golden few, as in Plato's system. It seems like most commentators seem to reach conclusions that are similar to that. But I agree with you that there is certainly not in Epicurean philosophy a specific endorsement of a particular system of government. He doesn't praise democracy at any point that I can see. On the other hand, he's clearly warning people against participating as a lackey of a king. It seems like there's discussions of that, although he does allow it, it seems like. The individual often does not have the ability to control what type of government that he finds himself under, but the individual has the goal of happiness. I would presume that what we're saying here is that to the extent possible, the individual is going to maneuver and navigate within whatever system he finds himself for his happiness to the extent that he can. Right. And there's that story of the flight from Mytilene and the the, uh, angry Platonists that he had ruffled up. When he was there and this brief episode where he it's difficult to get a handle on what actually happened, but he seems to have taken refuge within the holdings of a local ruler. So whether he was at court or some other thing, it's hard to say. But you're in general. Yeah, you're you're totally right. We can say for certain, of course, things like do kings have a divine right to hold power that they were given by a god? No, of course not. That You couldn't say that in Epicurean theory. Were the pharaohs of Egypt gods themselves? No, that's not that's not true either. So there are a few, a very small handful of specific situations where we can say for sure one way or another. But for the most part, we're we're kind of there's a lot of detail that gets filled in in a conversation like this one because there just aren't enough surviving texts to really know in the detailed level what he would have suggested as far as government. For example, I understand the Roman example, if not Greek, would be that there would be times in war or a particular threat to the country where you would have a dictator. But on the other hand, most of the time, the Romans, at least in the Republican period, were very anti-kingship. So it's always seemed to me that it made the most sense that you just have to decide your governmental issues based on the context that you're facing, because we do have sort of ideologies that seem to control the way people think. You'll get wedded to a particular position that this form of government is always the best in every situation for every person at every time. And that approach does not seem to me, at least, to be what Epicurus would be advising. He's constantly looking at the context of the situation. And if we were to go further into the doctrines on justice, 
it's interesting how they do seem to focus on the changing circumstances will determine whether a particular law is just or not just. And in fact, he specifically says that a law which is just at the beginning, if circumstances change, becomes unjust. So I would think that one of the fundamentals of this whole discussion is that your engagement in politics is going to be very context dependent. And maybe I should say this as well. What DeWitt starts this discussion with is is Doctrine 5. It's impossible to live pleasurably without living according to reason, honor, and justice, is the way DeWitt translates that one. It seems to me that he's probably right to point out that you're living pleasurably as an individual by following rules of conduct that make sense and that lead you to neither harm nor be harmed by other people. The focus is on your individual conduct in the philosophy and not trying to fit your conduct within a wider system of government, democracy, dictatorship, oligarchy, all the different standard forms that they were talking about back then. Ultimately, your focus is your own conduct and your own relationship with the other people around you as the best way to guarantee your happiness and safety, which gets into the friendship discussions and so forth. Maybe one thing to say is is something I say often, which is that part of how Epicurus understands his relation to government and society, and in some ways his removal from it into his garden, although it wasn't like the garden was on a mountaintop. <laughs> it's not like a Japanese temple where it's you know so far away that you can't even get to it. It's on the main road outside of the Dipilon Gate. But he sees what has happened to Anaxagoras, who was, for his own philosophy, condemned to die and, and survived only by exile in Lampsicus, of all places. He saw what happened to Socrates, who was condemned to die and, and did drink the hemlock. So things like that have to inform the way he positions himself in relation to prevailing systems of government, because sometimes it's just not worth dying for the right to teach your philosophy in the gymnasium, if it's just as good to teach your philosophy in your own private garden. And this is another point that Socrates at his own trial, because they accused him of denying that the sun was a divinity. And he said that essentially, it, you know, it, it's ludicrous to accuse me of this one. For one thing, I haven't even put this position forward. Uh, but for another, Anaxagoras's books are available in the marketplace for a drachma. And he did claim that the sun was a hot ball of metal the size of the Peloponnese. Yeah, and Joshua, that leads into what DeWitt closes this section with. And I think the ultimate point he's making is worth repeating, maybe with not in exactly the words DeWitt says, but he contrasts Epicurus with Plato in the issue of whether your model is looking up at the stars and seeing the regularity with which those move versus just looking at the way life is here on earth and how living things pursue pleasure. In other words, Epicurus is accusing Plato of seeking the music of the spheres or some type of celestial necessity and regularity as the model. But when Epicurus looks at life and, of course, his atomism and the swerve and so forth, he is seeing a different model by which to go by, and that um, DeWitt says that thus Epicurus and Plato stood at opposite extremes in advocating regimentation, essentially, is what he's talking about. And I think that probably is a useful point, that Epicurus's warning, I think in the letter to Pythocles, 
that you're not attempting to come up with a theory of everything in explaining the movement of what's going on in the skies above you. You're looking basically to understand it in a way that will allow you to be happy, in a way that will allow you to explain things in a natural way without the requirement of supernatural gods controlling everything. And there's just an essential difference in looking, as Plato was doing, to a perfect form of government, as he was talking about in his Republic, versus just looking at the reality of the way things are here on Earth. It's that idea that you can look to the heavenly spheres for inspiration as to how to order government on Earth that informs what in the Middle Ages was this idea of the great chain of being, that at the very bottom you had mineral and then vegetable and then lower order of animals and then higher order of animals. And then wives were subservient to husbands and children to parents and then the lower classes to the upper classes and the nobility to the king and then the king ultimately to what was above him. And then above that, you have angels and archangels and <laughs> mm-hmm. et cetera, until you get up to God and Jesus at his right hand. And of course, for an, for an Epicurean, things just don't work like that. No nature. And I mentioned this recently in reference to Thomas Hobbes, who said that life in nature is nasty, brutish and short. And it doesn't take much time to study nature to recognize that that there is no pact between lions and sheep or between, you know, wolves and their prey. That nature isn't like that. And to look for nature for cues to how we govern ourselves only works if you have blinders on and you're unwilling to see how nature really does operate. Okay, we'll move on to freedom and public careers after that. Again, we're treating this in a sort of a high level and not attempting to get into some of the details that hopefully we'll be able to get into in the future when we discuss some of the more recent writing. In fact, I mentioned previously the book Theory and Practice in Epicurean Political Philosophy. There's also an article out there that is very interesting on the same topic by Jeffrey Fish entitled Not All Politicians Are Sisyphus. There's a lot of good work on this issue that we're not going to be able to cover today. But the general issue in this relatively short section on public careers is that Epicurus was suggesting that it's a very unwise idea to base your career, the majority of the way you spend your time, in a field that is going to put you at the mercy of the crowd, at the mercy of other people who are notoriously fickle and cannot be counted upon, and that if you're looking for safety, security, stability in pursuit of happiness, you're going to want to maintain a level of independence from that that's just not generally consistent with a career in politics. Or any kind of really public persona in any field. Socrates was not a politician, but when a bare majority decides whether you live or die, some years that's going to go in your favor, some years it's not. And it only takes one time to not go in your favor for the effect to be permanent. So yeah, so there's a point to which removing yourself from some of this just is good for your longevity. Because when you look at the an area that we often look at, Cassius, which is this period at the end of the Roman Republic when Julius Caesar and, and um, Octavian Augustus are, are forging an empire, the remnants of the Republic, and just about every major person in that story dies violently. Which appears to be sort of the general observation of experience is that the higher, you know, there's all sorts of cliches about that. Stick your head out of the tall grass and you're likely to get it cut off. Just seems to be human nature that you're going to attract envy 
and dislike the more powerful or the more famous you become. DeWitt carries this forward by pointing out that at his time, there had been a division between those who were advocating that the active life, the political life was the best life for Greek versus those who advocated contemplation and withdrawal as the best life. DeWitt says Epicurus heightened the heat of the controversy by rejecting both the political life and the contemplative life as Plato and Aristotle had extolled it. There was a monk, the first monk to bring Buddhism to China. I think it was Bodhidharma. What the story is, is that he sat in a cave staring at the wall for so long that his eyes burned two holes into the wall. (laughs) Epicurus Mm. is not advocating that level of removal from society. He's not in the center of it. He's not so far removed from it that he's burning holes in the walls of a cave with his eyes. He's, as I say, right there on the Dipalon Road. Really no more removed from society than the academy, which was also on that road. So it's not so much the physical removal that is important to him. It's more in practice, in many ways, he removed himself from society by not seeking public favor, by not taking the political route, by not teaching in the gymnasium. It was issues like that that he avoided those practices. But he also didn't go into the desert and you know become a hermit. He avoided both of the extremes. I think DeWitt does a pretty good job with this, and he says that discerning the approach of Epicurus is not difficult. The objective of life is happiness, and to attain this, the individual must retain control of his experience. And this is where he gets back into this double choice. He says the control means the choice of two things. You have to choose your attitude, and then you choose the particular instance. The most important is to choose the attitude. He quotes Diogenes of Ornoanda as saying, the secret of happiness is in the diathesis, the attitude of which we are the sole arbiters. But that doesn't mean that in any particular instance, you're going to be able to follow your general inclination. Dewitt goes on to point out that there's careers in both democracies and royal courts, but that he was recommending that the best idea was to try to avoid both of those if you could. And this bleeds back into the issue of living the simple life. You focus on the issue that you don't really need all that many things in life in order to be happy. And that he says in Vatican saying 67, a life of freedom cannot acquire great wealth because of success in this being difficult apart from servitude to mobs or to monarchs. In both cases, whether it's a democracy, whether it's a dictatorship of some other kind, You're going to attract a lot of unwelcome attention, the more wealthy and ostentatious and how many gold chains you wear on your neck may be one example of that. The more you are showing off your wealth, what's the word? Conspicuous consumption might be one of the issues that comes under this umbrella, that the more conspicuous you are in flouting your wealth and success to others, the more likely you are to bring envy the desire to take that wealth away from you by the people. He cites Seneca as saying that Epicurus had told his friend Idomeneus that he should do his best to escape from the court of Lysimachus and make haste before some major emergency should arrive and deprive you of the liberty of withdrawing, which is just going to be your general situation that if you are engaged in this career of exposing yourself as a matter of longstanding, to the whims of either the mob or of the monarchs, you're jeopardizing your safety and happiness. 
And along with that, he cites Vatican saying, 58, we must plan our escape from the prison house of the conventional education and political careers, which is a subject that both Plutarch and Cicero and many others over time have used to criticize Epicurus because they're saying that Epicurus is advising just absolute non-participation in public affairs or the protection of the public, which I think would be going too far in accusing Epicurus of, because I don't think Epicurus suggested that you should just turn a total blind eye to what's going on around you. When action is necessary to protect your friends, you're going to have to take such action. And Francis writes a few days in Athens, she uses the illustration of Epicurus himself going to the aid of a friend of his who was in jeopardy of drowning in a stream. You simply have to, at certain times, take action. You can't just remain aloof of everything that's going on around you. Yeah. One thing I don't see mention of in this chapter is this inscription, which records Philonides of Laodicea. Laodicea. It's one of the oldest inscriptions that gives any record of the work of any Epicurean, and he lived between 200 and 130 BC, and he was at court in the court of the Seleucid dynasty during the reigns of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and Demetrius I Soter, which means savior. And there's this inscription which celebrates him and his activities. So in one of the earliest surviving physical remnants of anything relating to Epicureanism, we have this inscription celebrating the political career of an Epicurean. So it's it's clear that from the very earliest period, there was it was kind of a mixed question as to whether they would go into politics or not. And you can cite examples in which they did, and, and of course, many examples in which they didn't. One episode that Witt does mention here in this section is about Cicero complaining to Atticus after the assassination of Julius Caesar. He accuses Atticus of mentioning Epicurus and daring to warn me to keep out of the political game. Again, Atticus is one of your examples of someone who was not necessarily engaged himself in the middle of taking a political position, but he was maneuvering within this political environment in which he ended up trying to remain friends with everyone on both sides of the issue. Yeah, Cicero was killed when he was being carried in the litter and his hands and maybe his tongue were nailed to the Senate door. He did Mm -hmm. certainly meet an extremely gruesome end. Yeah, that's the history of Atticus. There's a life of Atticus by Cornelius Nepos that is preserved from that period that gives a long discussion of Atticus's devotion to Epicurean philosophy, as well as his experience as a leading Roman of the time. I constantly refer to Cassius Longinus as another Epicurean who's intimately involved in political action, but perhaps Atticus might be one of the most well-documented and maybe best examples of how it's generally best, if you can, to try to remain on good terms with as many people as you can. And Atticus was apparently very successful at doing that, even in the middle of one of the most divisive periods of Roman history. Yes, and one of the great scholars of Lucretius, Dennis Lambin, I mean, really, really one of the really (laughs) most influential scholars ever to work on the poem, also edited A Life of Atticus by Cornelius Nepos. So that's out there if you want to go read that. Now, continuing on, there's another subsection called Control of Environment. I think we're basically continuing to talk about the same general subject. In this section, DeWitt talks about the phrase live unknown that is reported by Plutarch to have been associated with Epicurus. 
And the Greek for that is Lathe Biosos, mm-hmm. saying that for Don's benefit. Right. DeWitt says, this saying is not found in the extant writings of Epicurus and is reported by Plutarch invidiously, as if Epicurus had courted fame by his writings while advising his disciples to shun it. But DeWitt says that Epicurus was not averse to fame, provided it came unsought. What he did desire, in fact, was a fame that was earned and deserved. His warning was against the notoriety that is earned in the public assembly and on the street. The other point to be made there is one that Diogenes Laertius makes when he says that Epicurus's friends cannot be counted mm-hmm. by whole cities, right? That his influence has spread so wide and so far, but that he has made so many more friends than enemies by doing it in the way that he did it, that he doesn't suffer the consequences that might otherwise come to him. Right. It seems like the general consensus is that during Epicurus's lifetime, he was well-liked in Athens. He wasn't persecuted in Athens, no evidence that he was ever hauled up on any kind of charges in Athens. But during his lifetime, he seems to have been well-liked. And not just in Athens. He was writing letters to Epicurean schools you know, around the Aegean. The early growth, and, and DeWitt said this early on in this book, the early growth of the Epicurean school was in Ionia and in Asia Minor. It actually wasn't on the Greek mainland. And partially because of Epicurus's early work to establish Epicurean communities in places like Lampsicus, Samos, uh, Lesbos, all of those little islands that are, as it were, on the other side of the Aegean from mainland Greece, that's Ionia. One thing we haven't talked about is Epicurus's somewhat controversial advice of what you should do if you come into windfall wealth. Yes. Because it bears directly on this question, doesn't it? He says that it's impossible to grow rich without being slaves to mobs and tyrants or however he words that. He says, though, oh, actually, I do have the exact quote because it's on page 190. He says, a life of freedom cannot amass great wealth because of success in this life being difficult apart from servitude to mobs or monarchs. But it does enjoy all things in uninterrupted abundance. If, however, now and then great wealth does fall to its lot, it would gladly disperse this to win the goodwill of its neighbor. So the idea in Epicureanism, and and it takes a little bit to sort of set this up, is the idea that having networks of well-supported friends, that that in itself is a safety net better than almost any other safety net you can have, right? And you don't establish that just so you can use it, but so that as you will in times of need rely on your friends, your friends in times of need will rely on you. And that by combining those together, you get communities, not necessarily communes, in fact, not communes, because Epicurus did not advise holding wealth in common, but you get communities and networks of friendship, as I said, that spanned many cities across the Aegean, where people in difficult times could always have someone they could count on to help them out or or point them in the right way. Lucian describes the episode in which Alexander the Oracle monger paid the captain and crew of a ship to throw him overboard in the middle of a voyage. And he was able to get out of that partially because of the conscience of the captain who refused to do it, but partially because he had people he could rely on when he did make it, when they dropped him off at their next stop. They didn't carry him all the way home. 
So it's having networks of friends that can support you is more important than being Scrooge McDuck in a vault where you're diving into piles of gold. The question is, how do you apply this? Because I'm not going to suggest to people listening to this that you should draw your 401k or whatever it is and just give it all away to your friends. I don't think that's a very wise course either. Yeah, to me, Joshua, this is where you see that the issue of total withdrawal from politics makes no sense at all and really could not have been Epicurus's position. He's saying, at DeWitt quotes on 190, authorized doctrine 27, of all the preparations that wisdom makes for the blessedness of the perfect life, by far the most precious is the acquisition of friendship. And to me, the way he's talking about all this and fitting it into the big picture, we're not just talking about tea parties and who you play cards with on Saturday night. We're talking about a strong, continuous relationship with people that you're living nearby and living with. And I don't see a significant bright line between this and the whole issue of how society is organized in the first place. He's not really telling you what to do in terms of where to draw your state lines or your city lines or your county lines. He's just telling you that you need a network of people around you who are supportive of you, who you like, who like you, and who can interact with you on an ongoing basis to live happily together. To me, that sounds an awful lot like a society and not just a matter of, like I said, individual hunting buddies, drinking buddies, the people who you do a certain set of discrete activities with, this sounds to me like a much more general relationship that encompasses just about every aspect of your life. He's telling you to study with your friends the philosophy and nature, and that that's the best way to pursue happiness. And to me, all of this comes together in this general relationship that it's more important to have the support of people around you than it is to have money or anything like that. I think it's somewhere he says that friendship is an immortal good or something like that. It's almost as if he's saying that money, food, all these other issues are sort of temporary things that change dramatically in context as time goes on, but that the way you need to look at things in general is that no matter what circumstances come your way, you need friends to work with you to deal with them. And so DeWitt says the innovation of Epicurus was to advise making a systematic business of friendship. It was not, in his opinion, sufficient to leave the winning and keeping of goodwill to chance and opportunity. To win and to keep it was to become an integral part of the control of environment for the sake of happiness and security, which meant freedom. Friends are made where possible. Hostility is neutralized where possible and contacts are avoided where neutrality or friendship is impossible. I think we do tend to think of this in terms of who do we like to talk to on the telephone or who do we go shopping with or who do we go have lunch with on occasion. It seems to me this is a much more sweeping advice that you organize every aspect of your life among people who you have a agreement neither to harm nor be harmed with. So I see it as much deeper than what I think a lot of people might suggest. This is the way you're going to structure your, your whole life. Your example about money and so forth, the purpose of your money is to secure your happiness, and you're going to have to decide how to use your money based on these relationships with the people that you're counting on. 
if everyone around you is starving, you're not going to be able to maintain your own happiness for very long. And he talks about an example that is recorded apparently by Plutarch about there being a time in Athens where the Epicureans had to divide the beans or something among themselves. So I see this as just hugely important, the application of Epicurean philosophy. It's not just a matter of thinking about correct philosophy and understanding your relationship to gods and pleasure and virtue and things like that. You actually apply it and live it through surrounding yourself by people who are your friends who see things similarly. So that leads us to freedom in the simple life. Which is, of course, a continuing theme of of what we talk about on a regular basis. In this context, it seems like he's emphasizing the aspect that in your relationships with other people, in your ability to continue to have control over your environment, the best way to have control over your environment and the expectation of being able to maintain your happiness is to focus on a lifestyle in which you are able to be sure that you can continue that lifestyle. Maybe the buzzword nowadays is sustainability, things like that. That if you know that you have the ability to supply yourself with the things that you need, then you are much more independent of the ups and downs of of life in general and of other people and the mobbed. You don't need either one. You don't need the mob or you don't need the dictator. But what you do need, you do need your friends. He quotes the section, we judge self-sufficiency to be a great good, not meaning that we should live on little under all circumstances, but that we may be content with little when we do not have plenty. A little bit before that, Cassius, he says, I'm not sure who is quoting here because he mentions Horace and Epicurus, but he says, before you look for something to eat and drink, you should look around for companions with whom to eat and drink. For life without a friend is just the gulping of a lion and a wolf. Yes. That in some ways it's not just beneficial to you, but it's also more civilized life. And it's better and more pleasurable if you have friends to share it with. I like something that you find here on uh, 193 where he says, um, quoting Horace here, I think, who says in Latin, dulce es desipere in loco which DeWitt says means not merely it is a pleasure to forget one's philosophy on occasion, but that it is a special pleasure uh, to forget one's philosophy on occasion. And we've, we talk about this typically in reference to things like food. If a fine dinner is presented to you, you're not going to refuse that for the sake of simplicity. That would be silly. I mentioned last week Diogenes the Cynic refusing fine garments and demanding his his threadbare cloak back, an Epicurean is not going to make that choice. If they're presented with something nicer than what they're accustomed to, they're going to take it because it's pleasurable. And the danger would be becoming accustomed to something that is beyond your means to sustain. But that phrase, it is a pleasure to forget one's philosophy on occasion, is something I'm going to have to remember because the next section is control of desires. And I can occasionally have too much of talking about natural and necessary and, and so forth. So, <laughs> Yes, I guess the, the dulce Latin that you're quoting, that evokes book two of Lucretius, right? Dulce means it's sweet. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's sweet to occasionally forget 
in circumstances. Now, DeWitt's paraphrasing that and extending it to talk about philosophy, because I'm not sure that the word philosophy is in that sentence, but it's sweet to sometimes forget yourself. It's sweet to sometimes forget your place, I think. Yeah, because like you said, that's a reference to what DeWitt's going to talk about next in terms of condensation of pleasure. And he ends the discussion in this chapter by talking about the 20th. I have that quote from Horace, if you want me to read it. Okay, yes. He says, it is delightful to play the fool occasionally. It is nice to throw aside one's dignity and relax at the proper time. The point he's making is that we're not following a simple lifestyle in order to just follow a simple lifestyle. We're following it so that we can be, quote, unshrinking before the inevitable vicissitudes of life and fearless in the face of fortune, because we know that we can be happy even if we do have only the simple diet. But when we are confronted with the possibilities or able to obtain the more luxurious diet or lifestyle, we don't shrink back from that either. We just don't accustom ourselves to it and believe that it's necessary for our happiness. Right. You're not going to bankrupt yourself looking for the best meal that money can buy Mm -hmm. and trying to live on that because you won't be able to do it. And the pain that is going to accrue to you is going to be far, far greater than the pleasure you get from eating it. And so this last section about control of desires, as you were saying a moment ago, Joshua, is focused on basically that you need to maintain an understanding of the big picture and not let yourself get carried away out of context with pursuing things that are not necessary, for example, the luxuries we're talking about. But what DeWitt goes into is that he's, again, avoiding the terminology of both Plato and Aristotle. He's not talking about the harmonies between parts of the soul or about a mean in virtues. He's setting up the logical construct that in order to be happy, a man must possess freedom, But freedom is not a right, but an achievement, and it consists in maintaining and retaining control of your experience under all circumstances. And that's not going to be the Stoic's suppression of desire. It's going to be looking at your circumstances, realizing that happiness is your goal, but doing what's necessary under the individual circumstances to best achieve happiness, not just for the sake of controlling everything, but because Control leads you to the happiest result. And he goes on to say, quoting Vatican saying 59, people say the stomach is insatiable, but it is not the stomach that is insatiable. They have a false opinion about the limitless quantity required to fill the stomach. In other words, it's the desire that is grown out of all proportion to what is really needful. To emancipate oneself from this servitude to false opinion and to make every act an act of choice is made possible through practical reason. That's DeWitt talking there. And this is where he introduces the natural and necessary aspect of things again, because he considers that to be an attitude, that when you understand that some things are natural and necessary and you fit them into all those categories, that gives you a general understanding of the possibilities that confront you. But then within that general understanding, you have to do what's stated in Vatican saying number 71. You look at the particular choice according to the question, quote, what will be the result for me if the object of this desire is fulfilled? And what if it's not fulfilled? It's plain pragmatism, as DeWitt says here, the control of experience for the sake of happiness. You're not looking to categorize, again, we talk about these categories of natural and necessary and so forth. You don't really gain anything 
by simply spending all your time thinking about categories and trying to fit everything into a specific label. I talk sometimes about sitting down and preparing a spreadsheet of trying to label everything and fit it into a particular category. You gain an understanding through a process of that that is helpful. But in the end, what you have to do is look at every particular choice that's in front of you and ask what's going to happen if you pursue it and what's going to happen if you don't. You know from past experience that in general, you can expect certain things to happen, but there's no necessity in life is the whole topic of this chapter. And simply because you choose to follow a formula that has worked for you in the past is no guarantee of future results, as they say in the financial industry. Past experience is no guarantee of future performance. You have to look at every circumstance and make the decision that's going to be the best under the terms of your situation. So as we begin to reach the end of chapter 10 here, the final issue is how Lucretius makes the point that the freedom that we have that we've been discussing all through this chapter allows us to hope to attain a happy life. DeWitt says, the text of Lucretius is explicit, quote, in these matters, I do seem able to make this assertion that so infinitesimal are the residual traces of natural faults, which reason cannot eradicate from the educated, that nothing hinders them from passing a life worthy of the gods. And for the remainder of the chapter here, DeWitt talks about how Lucretius had identified that within animals, there'd be certain types of atoms or certain types of arrangements of atoms that would lead them to have particular personalities, maybe the lion being potentially angry or hot-tempered, other people being cooler and maybe less inclined to anger. But the general point here is the last sentence of the chapter. Thus, the individual gains control of experience, which is the prerequisite of happiness. So maybe the general foundation of all of this is that the atomist philosophy, the swerve that provides the basis for free will and the ability to affect our future, provides us an understanding by which we can take action that will produce beneficial results and allow us to live more happily than if we would otherwise. Certainly, if we were bound by necessity, we would have no ability to control our futures. But the bottom line conclusion of all this is that we have the ability to take action and therefore, given the shortness of life, we should to live as happily as possible. Since you brought up education, have a degree in in the liberal arts, I'm going to quote from uh, that page on Wikipedia where it says, in 4th century BC Athens, which is the time that Epicurus was born in the 4th century, the government of the polis or city-state respected the ability of rhetoric or public speaking above almost everything else. Eventually, rhetoric, grammar, and dialectic became the educational program of the trivium, or the three-part way. Together, they came to be known as the seven liberal arts. Originally, these subjects or skills were held by classical antiquity to be essential for a free person. In Latin, liberalis, worthy of a free person, to acquire in order to take an active part in civic life, something that included, among other things, participating in public debate, defending oneself in court, serving on juries, and participating in military service. While the arts of the quadrivium might have appeared prior to the arts of the trivium, by the Middle Ages, educational programs taught the trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric first, while the quadrivium of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy were the following stage of education. Yes, we've spent all of chapter 10, and as we bring it all to a conclusion today, 
the whole point of all of this is that the universe is so arranged that we have freedom of action, and that means educating ourselves, studying nature, and then applying the lessons that we learn from all of this to improve our lives. If the determinism of Democritus and hard determinism were the situation, there would be no reason for us to be concerned with any of this. We would just consider everything to be a matter of necessity and not worry about taking any particular actions ourselves. But because some things are within our control, our life is short. It makes sense to use our time to improve our lives. And education, study of nature is the way to do it. Combining it with friendship, we have this problem that if our most important tool in life in obtaining happiness is to have friends, we do need friends who are in agreement with us. We need to have people who share our opinions and share our viewpoints on life as probably the firmest foundation of friendship, to have this general understanding of agreement not to harm each other, not to be harmed. And that means there's a matter of talking to other people, communicating with them, and ascertaining who's our friend and who's not going to be our friend. All of this is a matter of education might not be exactly the right word, but it's certainly communication with other people. We don't just live the best life by reading a book and storing within our minds some knowledge without application. So we've come to the end of chapter 10. Next week, we're going to start a whole new section on soul, sensation, and mind, chapter 11. For today, hopefully we've, over the last several episodes, hit the issue of freedom and determinism hard enough. Not just freedom and determinism, but there's a clear path to freedom and neither determinism, nor fate, nor chance, nor government, nor law, nor civic duties, nor desire are so obtrusive in your life that you can't find a way to get to that freedom is the whole purpose of the chapter. And that's certainly a big struggle that a lot of people have in adverse conditions. You get to the feeling like everything is stacked against you. And no doubt there are very difficult circumstances in life with disease and all sorts of problems that we all have. And what do you do when confronted with all that? At root, you need an attitude of realizing that your life is short, but you do have some flexibility. And no matter how bad the cards you may be dealt at a particular time, it's up to you to do the best with the table as it's set for you. There's not a supernatural God. There's not a force of fate out there or a force of luck that's going to come to your assistance. Ultimately, things are, to a large degree, something that you have to take charge of yourself. So maybe with that, we should go to closing statements for the day and for the chapter. Martin, closing thoughts. I have nothing to add. Thanks. Okay. Calasini, anything today? I have nothing to add. Thank you. Joshua. Not fully related, but I'm reading the PDF as we go through this, and I'm on page 205 out of 397. And of course, that's including all of the extra material at the back of the book that we won't read. So we seem to be well over halfway, in other words, in our project of going through this book. So we are making progress. Right. This has been one of those sections that possibly takes people by surprise when they go through a book like this and think that they're going to hear all about the details of pleasure. But it's a foundational point that if we don't have the ability to make choices and see the results of our choices, then everything else falls apart. So we've started out in the process by eliminating that, and we continue through the practical application of nature as we find it. Okay, well, with that, we have completed Chapter 10, 
And we'll be back next week to take up Chapter 11, Soul, Sensation, and Mind. In the meantime, please come by the forum and let us know any questions or comments or just engage in general discussion about Epicurus with us. Thanks for your time today. We'll be back next week.